This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to The Blank Podcast, the podcast where we talk to well-known guests about their lives, their careers, and those difficult moments along the way. I'm Giles Perry Phillips, and with me is Jim Daly. Hello. How are you? All right. How are you? Uh, not too bad. I am I feel a bit dishevelled because I've come straight from the gym, and so I look a bit dishevelled as well. And it's now raining outside as well. It's been such a weird day. Um, so I'm a bit tired, but other than that, I'm okay. And I'm off to play football later as well, so I just... Oh, blimey, it's all like going, it. Packing it in, yeah, I don't know what Jesus. I'm doing, really, but all for, it's all, cho- all out of choice. Why am I choosing to give myself such a mad time? I don't know. But anyway, I'm doing okay. Well, it's good. Exercise is always good. And it does, yeah, yeah, you, know, it's good, you know, it's good for you in lots of ways. Good for mental health and obviously good for physical health. Very true. That's very true. No, And it should be fun. It's a nice bunch to play football with on a, on a Friday, so it should be good. Um, but yeah, I just keep giving myself stuff to do. <laughs> we do that don't we like i think we're not i don't know about you but i'm kind of not very good sometimes when i've not got something to do yeah i need i need to need to fill my time i'm not i'm not good at relaxing mm. um but i don't know if that's just creative thing i don't know it could be it could be yeah i think some it's just inherently in us sometimes just to keep keep on keeping on keep on trucking Keep on trucking, like long distance truck, Clara. Yeah. Pigeon Street. Indeed. Very niche Pigeon Street <laughs> reference there. We like niche on yeah. this podcast. Well, we've got an amazing guest today, haven't we, Jim? We've just um, yeah. finished this conversation with um, Molly McHugh, who is a, I guess, a, a, an information warfare expert. I mean, that's probably one of the things that she does, but she's an in, an incredibly interesting, insightful individual whose knowledge of... Um, Russia and Russian history and the culture and she's been a policy um, advisor to many governments um, across the world actually not just in the US is which is where she is based in uh, in Washington DC um, 
mostly around kind of disinformation and information warfare and something we talked about in the pod, which is kind of the weaponized narrative, which is really fascinating. He really knows her shit. Yeah. When it comes to this stuff. And that was apparent, like sort of a minute in, she's just so knowledgeable and, you know, I've spent a long time sort of working in these kind of, in these sectors, but she's really knowledgeable and passionate as well. And like that you can tell there's a real like drive behind her to like try and help make things better again, try and help like help make the world better for everyone because we are going through a very weird time, certainly technologically wise. Um, and yeah, you can tell that's really sort of driving her on, but, but also just, yeah, very knowledgeable. Could have, I had to end the podcast slightly abruptly because I really needed a wee because I didn't prep properly for the pod because I drank too much tea and water but I could have easily sat and listened to Molly for ages I, I actually had loads more questions as well that I didn't get around to but she's just a real sort of oracle on, on this subject yeah absolutely I mean we talked from everything from sort of conspiracy theories through to like yeah Russian influence on elections and um, obviously the war in Ukraine was a hot topic and you know Vladimir Putin and you know, just very much like covered a lot of bases, but um, yeah, very knowledgeable, obviously around these subject matters. And, you know, at times, it, you know, it feels like when you're having a conversation like that, that it can feel quite despairing, like the world can feel mm-hmm. quite despairing. You know, she sort of referenced this like weird dystopia that we're headed towards, you know, and I think, you know, we've got to all kind of um, take account for ourselves with regards to how we utilise social media platforms and youtube and all these different things and just be a bit more aware and savvy about information that we're we're sort of taking in you know there's a lot of there's a lot of information probably way too much information for us as individuals um and you can see why there's you know a rise in mental health issues and stuff regarding um you know our, our interaction with each other online and stuff but I think, yeah, we just all need to sort of reflect a little bit on our usage and the kind of information that we're we're taking in and making sure that we, yeah, that we kind of have decent conversations with one another so that we are not just getting these binary arguments to very different discourse and, you know, that there's so much that it covers with regards to, like, political influence and everything. we just got to be careful is what I'm trying to say, I guess. Yeah, I think that's fair. But as I said, like we're in a new, the technology we use and social media and stuff is all quite, it's quite young and quite new. So I think we, and Molly was sort of saying, it's don't really quite know how to use it, I don't think. And then when people come along who do with maybe nefarious kind of intentions, you're, you're not, you're not, not going to get swept up in it. You know, because I, yeah, it's just, it's very interesting. It is, uh, it is slightly depressing, <laughs> but I think knowledge is power. So, you know, this is sort of, episode that will leave you definitely more knowledgeable on the subject and and the more you have that i think it slightly makes you feel a bit more better that you can um just as you say be careful and just kind of filter out what needs to be not not seen well see it as a kind of warning it's a warning to all of us really that what we're consuming isn't necessarily the 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 real thing you know like you know the, yeah. you've got to be very aware of like fake news and disinformation on all different subjects and just making sure that we i guess counterbalance anything we watch with other things and and hope you know hope in hell that you know a lot of these social media platforms and things like youtube tiktok are you know are being careful their algorithms and just making sure that it's particularly with young people you know have been being a parent worried about you know a lot of the stuff my my kids are consuming 
making mm. sure that that comes from a good place, and um, which is very difficult. And obviously, we talked about that and how a lot of these media companies they just want we know we're 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 a customer base now, so they just want to keep using their their platforms. But at the same time, they, there's you know there's a certain amount of safeguarding that needs to be put in place because you know if we're all going to be like ruining each other, then we're not going to be using these things anyway. Yeah, very true. It's it's like. Not- do you know what? Let's just get into it because we're having our own little side debate because it is so interesting and because like, it's yeah. so relevant and we are also as two social media users kind of like quite deep in it. Um, but let's go on to Molly because she knows a lot more about this than we do yeah. and um, it's a fascinating episode. Uh, so here we are. This is um, the brilliant and and I genuinely think this will be a very useful episode for all our listeners. Uh, the fantastic Molly McHugh on the Blank Podcast. <laughs> There's an awful lot I want to discuss with you, but I thought, you know, Jim and I will probably ask you some quite basic, stupid questions that would be very obvious for people who are aware of this, um, the kind of information that you that you have knowledge of. Um, but I wanted to start off kind of by asking you what is meant by the term weaponized narrative? It's a good question. Um, you know, I think that... So, if information is pieces of information, obviously we know what information is. And narrative is kind of the architectural structure into which information goes to make sense of itself. Um, the idea of weaponized narrative is essentially a narrative that's constructed uh, to get you to believe a thing which may not be true. Um, or is purposefully coercive or is purposefully subversive. Um, and I think, uh, you know, especially on the American side where our information landscape is pretty much entirely garbage now and completely filled with conspiracy and even people who think they know what's going on have no idea what's going on most of the time. Um, and I think our whole concept of sort of psychological defense in this country is not happening. Um, people get bits of information and immediately put them into these sort of weaponized narrative structures in ways that clearly make absolutely no sense. And like this week, for example, a good example of this is this stupid kid who stole all the classified stuff and put it in his Discord group because he wanted to be the big man in the gamer group. And um, the second this, it was sort of revealed who he was and what, you know, the whole right-wing crazy structure in America is like, he's a whistleblower, he's a patriot, he was just trying to tell us the Ukraine war is bullshit. And none of those things are actually, in any way, factually true. He was not a whistleblower, he was just trying to make himself the big man in this strange Discord group. Uh, He wasn't trying to reveal any truths to the public, he specifically said not to. Um, It's just, you know what I mean, but people were in this, like, highly activated state all the time where we assort information into things that reinforce our own worldviews. Um, and some of us are getting very bad at doing that in a way that makes actually sense at all. Yeah. Mm. Thanks for describing that. And um, Sorry, it was a long answer. <laughs> no, it was a good answer. It's per- absolutely perfect. And I, as you were talking there, I'm realizing that I think that is seeping into British culture as well. Like I know you sort of said 
from the American side, but it feels like certainly with... And Giles and I try really hard not to be too political on this podcast. Like, our political uh, uh, persuasions are pretty clear. But a lot of Conservative MPs here, I think, are starting to uh, read the playbook from Republican uh, messaging. For example... Yeah, I saw it on Twitter the other day. It was some—I can't remember what it was—but I'm going to use a loose example here. But it's something like this, where like the the Conservatives have said, "We are refunding and building uh, ten new hospitals, or something, like, or, or and we are we are getting a hundred thousand nurses into work." Well, actually, two hundred thousand left because of your policies, and, it, and it's like flipping that information. Yeah. And I'm just, I'm, as you're saying, I'm, I'm I'm wondering if that's have you noticed sort of a closer link between the UK and, and America in terms of people that are doing this, you know, weaponizing the narrative? Yeah, for sure. You know, it's been this interesting maybe eight last eight or so years now. It seems like it's it's a longer it's a much longer time than I want it to be. But you know, around twenty fifteen, I guess it was twenty sixteen, but before Brexit before the Trump election, I was doing this project with um, a British firm at the time, was one of our partners, and, you know, I think we had been joking about how dumb everything was, and then the Brexit vote happened, and he just sort of looks at us and goes, well, you must be glad that we have the dunce cap for a while. And it is this sort of dynamic where we're, like, passing back and forth the ability to make terrible political decisions for our nations, right? And um, I think for me, as, um, you know, my sister lives in the UK uh, with her children, who I go visit uh, as often as possible. So I sort of see the, and they're in school, so you see all the, like, politics around all of these things and trying to get healthcare and whatever else. Um, and it's like this constant hilarity for me as an outsider who gets to have outsider views of things to come to the UK and listen to people talk about shit that's going wrong and in no way mention the word Brexit or attach it to decisions that had anything to do with leaving the EU. But it's just like, oh, the NHS has gotten so bad and you're looking at them like, but why is that? But they like won't say the word Brexit. It's just sort of madness. But you're right that uh, the US and the UK have always been kind of not necessarily bookends, but we're, you know, attached in this strange game of telephone across the Atlantic. Um, we do share political cultures, sometimes, not always, but certainly ties between political movements, parties, uh, consultants, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think in this most recent decade or so, there's been this yucky overlap of political consulting where it's sort of now merging into data science and i'm going to air quotes science on that but the understanding Mm. that data targeted narrative and information can be used to manipulate voters in specific ways um and can be used to identify and mobilize voters or suppress voters in specific ways Um, i do think there's strong connectivity between British firms, American firms, individuals who believe this is like the way into the future, um, collaborating on these things, and particularly on the conservative side of the spectrum, there's like a group of dudes who just want to burn shit down, who are working closely together, and some of them are in the British system, some of them are American, some of them are working on both sides of the Atlantic, 
Um, but this stuff is really unhelpful and there's a lot of money behind it and it's really hard to see. And when you try to talk about it, it sounds crazy. It's like, let me get my tinfoil hat and I'm going to tell you the story (laughs) of this data stuff. Uh, and there's been some really good British reporters, some really good American investigative reporters who have really tried to dig into this and tell parts of the story. Um, but it's incredibly challenging to do it in a way that convinces anyone that it matters. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, we've seen here, obviously, the Cambridge Analytica story that b- broke and, and there was kind of, you know, obviously there was a lot of dismay around that and, and, and seeing feeling, people feeling like they've been duped in some way. But it, that seems to have gone away quite quickly. Um, and it doesn't feel like it feels like someone else probably has come in and filled the void that they left. Nobody wants to believe that they were duped into doing something that they didn't, it wasn't that like, okay, yes, but I would have done that anyway. It's sort of like the psychological defense to a lot of what's happened in the last decade in our politics, right? And um, I just, no one wants to believe this stuff is as cap- as powerful as it is, as capable of changing our minds as it is, um, of not necessarily always changing your mind as grabbing the one thing that may be like the most extreme point of your view and sort of making that the holistic view that you now inhabit. Um, It's this stuff is really powerful and there's no rocket science behind it. It's basic marketing. Like if I can Mm. make you buy a vitamin, you absolutely don't need, and it's going to make you feel great, even though it's doing nothing for you because it's going to get longevity or whatever. Um, There's no difference in like the, the, psychological technology of how you do that than how you convince people of political views, cultural views, social views. And certainly in the United States, um, you know, there's been a good 40, 50 years of an extremely long line, well-constructed effort to move conservatism in a certain direction. Um, the conservatives would argue the same about uh, the liberal views, um, which certainly has moved and progressed, but I think not in the same structured way. Um, but anyway, I just, uh, we don't want to believe this stuff works on us. Like it works on the rubes, whoever we qualify yeah. the rubes as, but we yeah. don't want to believe that it works on any of us, uh, whoever the we and the us is. Uh, and it does, like it convinces us of things that we are sometimes not very aware of. And I, all of us are now, uh, if you're on social media, if you're consuming media, if you are listening to podcasts, we're all participating in this system of sort of micro narrative environments that we live in. Um, and that does reinforce, it tends to reinforce the views that we want to hear, right? <laughs> so yeah, yeah, it's a definitely. very strange media environment that we're now living inside where all of these tools, especially the ones that are data backed, can be really effective. Yeah, so I've got I've got three points off that. I find this stuff really interesting, and I've got three points off the back of that. The first is that with social media, I, it, it almost feels like the sort of the sort of disinformation slash information overload has become like the Wild West a bit, and anyone can say anything. And you, in a way, you could, if you wanted to, have access to all of that stuff. I mean, I choose not to, and actually, you're, you're absolutely right about sort of like the echo chamber. I choose to create my own little sort of lefty, lovely echo chamber on Twitter and stuff, and only hear like lovely stuff I want to hear. And if anything sort of horrible comes in my timeline, and sort of blocking it. But that the thing about the information is really interesting because I would, um, would, I don't want to. 
going to come off really arrogant. I don't mean to, but like I would say, I'm like, a, no. I'm, I'm like a, a fairly educated, like smart guy. I think I'm like kind of up to tune with like stuff. Like politically, like I'm not like the most intelligent, but I'm sort of in tune with it and stuff. So I kind of think like, okay, I can see when someone's trying to dupe me. Like I don't think that information would work on me. But you're absolutely right. I'm sure it does, and I'm sure that I'm constantly being persuaded to do things, even if it's just from sort of marketing uh, point of view. And then my third point was just. From from the first 15 minutes of this podcast and everything you've told me, it sounds like, from your position, it's a real uphill battle. Is it essentially just really depressing <laughs> when you're coming up against this, like, wave after wave of this information and tactics? Um, it's depressing when uh, you're in an environment where everybody's decided it's not happening, slash not a thing, slash there's nothing that can be done. It's just how it is now. Like, we will all live in this blender of bullshit forever. And... Um, it's not, it's not, in fact, actually the way things need to work. Um, you know, I do a lot of work in the Baltic countries with our Nordic partners, um, with countries that do still have this, like, military-based but national security-focused concept of psychological defense. Like, how are you actually defending your people from the erosion of will that will weaken your ability to defend your nation is kind of the core you know, Cold War era version of psychological defense, but still very relevant today. And if you read the information doctrine from the Russians or other adversaries, this is the thing they're focused on, is sort of the spiritual resources. How do you erode the will of the enemy to resist, to fight, to do a thing, whatever? Um, And I think we're just, we, the United States, I think the UK also is in this bucket with us, um, not very focused on this whole realm of things and what it is doing to our countries. And it's one thing if you, and I think there is this cynicism in both of our political systems where part of the reason stuff enough isn't being done to fix the, some of the holes that are allowing this stuff to happen is every political force thinks they can use it better and smarter than the other guys, right? Like, well, mm-hmm. if I can win elections this way, I'm going to win the election that way too. Um, and that's a really dangerous thing that is happening, but it is very real. And you've seen it in the U.S. You know, in 2016, 2018, there was sort of a left-wing, this is all wrong and bad. And then you're getting up to 20, like 2019, 2020, and all of a sudden there's these stories about secret, you know, democratic efforts to do things. And you can see the mindset growing of everybody thinks these tools are powerful in a variety of different ways, either for voter mobilization, voter suppression, smearing opponents, elevating uh, candidates, uh, just creating chaos in a way that is somehow beneficial to you. Um, Whatever the thing is, people are now convinced these are useful tools, so why would you turn them off if you think you can use it better than other people? And I think that dynamic is super challenging, but we're very much in that place right now. Other countries are not. And, um, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's funny slash refreshing slash sad when I'm in some of our partner countries who are much more aggressive about this stuff, who devote more resources to monitoring the information domain, explaining to the public what things are like, people are telling you this and what this is about Mm. is this, and you should understand. And, in a way that's not political, that they have done over time, so they sort of built trust in the institutions that are explaining um, narratives and weaponized narrative and other things. Um, But for the United States, we're so far from having anything that resembles functionality on psychological defense. It's um, 
really sad. And it's absolutely working again. Like, all of our enemies and allies are now targeting us with stuff because we're so persuasive, like, we're so easily persuaded mm-hmm. by things. Um, and, uh, you can do it in really effective ways. Like, I, I won't say the country, but I was talking to a, a friendly nation to the United States that was absolutely targeting social media campaigns just to Congress, because you can do that, right? It's like a specific geographic mm-hmm. area. Um, but so they were just targeting like Congress and congressional staffers with a specific information campaign and it was really effective and it worked and like, wow. and it was for something good. So I'm not going to say anything about it, mm-hmm. but who else is doing that? And it's not going to be good all the time. <laughs> you know, it was like, anyway, it's, I find this whole basket of things unnerving because it is useful to, it is it's a useful tool for too many people who want to have this kind of control. Um, and then there is both a contrarian narrative and a purposeful adversarial narrative that this stuff doesn't really do anything and only crazy people believe that it works so that no one pays attention to it anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, both of those things... Like, all of these different factors are really unhelpful in terms of where a lot of us are, I think, right now. I've got, I've got a sort of... Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, a, like an active question. In the, if Because you're absolutely right. Anyone can be targeted. And I've, I've, I've seen that with social media jobs and stuff. We want to target certain people that are into football or into sports or whatever, about whatever program we're working on or whatever. Is there any way to avoid that or turn it off? Like, if, I, if I'm someone, I go on my TikTok, and all I want to see is videos of cats dancing. That's all I want to say. I don't want to see anything else. <laughs> is there a way for me to stop being targeted by big brands, government, whatever? Can you switch that off? Or actually, is that, is that out of you know, the simple controls of a normal user? It does depend on which platform, how you're using and connecting to the internet, etc. If you're trying to anonymize your data a bit more, um, if you're using a VPN, whatever. There are ways to make it a little less terrible. Um, And certainly what you were talking about earlier, which is like you sculpt your own timeline, right? Which is like you block whoever you don't want to see, you follow who you want to see. Um, That's actually an important... and, And it's the reason that like Twitter was a really useful thing until it was burned yeah. to the ground um, for yeah. journalism and for politics and policy because you could follow sort of the, the people talking about the things that you needed uh, specifically. And for a while, it was an incredibly powerful tool for that. Um, uh, so, yes, you can to some to some degree make it a little less bad. Um, but no, not really is the answer. And I think more than the blocking the stuff that is maybe outside persuasion it's people understanding how to talk to you in your thing with persuasion that's the most powerful uh, example. And I think the, one of the best small examples of this in the U.S. context, um, you know, during the Trump presidency, very activated information environment. Everybody was on a side. Everybody was reacting to information in specific ways in this very, you know, sort of Soviet concept of reflexive control. The idea that you can put pressure on a system and know how it's going to react immediately. Uh, we were all living in this in the U.S. And, um, there was this video posted online at some point during one of the... It was like an overlap of a pro-life protest in D.C. and an anti-Trump protest in D.C. Like, they happened to be happening the same weekend or something. 
And so a video was posted during those things of young kid, young teenager wearing a MAGA hat, um, you know, standing up against, like, seeming to confront a Native American man with a drum who's, like, drumming at him and he's, like, staring him down. And the, the way that it was filmed and edited and the way it was interpreted immediately by everybody who saw this was, God, these outrageous MAGA kids, like, look at what MAGA is doing to the, the youth of America. Um, and it blew up. In, like, an hour, this thing had been reposted a bazillion times. Um, and then, because it it, 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 it it spoke to the left-wing uh, activation points, right? Like, you knew what this was, bad MAGA kid, this is so terrible, like, they're radicalizing their own people. Um, so everybody had reposted this video. Later, uh, the original version was found, which was this group of Native American demonstrators who were there, deliberately walking up with multiple cameras to this group of kids who were, like, sitting by the Lincoln Memorial not paying attention to anyone. Like, they were just on a field trip and waiting for their ride. And, like, standing against them. And, like, the kid just didn't know what to do. Like, in the longer-form video, it was clear that this kid, who did look really arrogant and, like, confrontational, was just, like, totally confused of what was happening. Wow. Um, and it turns out later, actually a jerk, yes. But, like, didn't really know what was <laughs> happening. <laughs> I mean, he really did turn into a jerk and, of course, like, won some big lawsuit and, like, oh, now cool. is one of these famous right-wing crazy kids. But, um... But anyway, this video was staged. Like, clearly someone made this video, edited it, posted it very quickly um, to target that specific kind of outrage of sort of the native, minority, blah, blah, blah stuff happening on the left wing, the anti-MAGA sentiment. Uh, but both sides, the MAGA people and the anti-MAGA people, just reacted exactly as required mm. and promoted this video everywhere. Um, and it became this flashpoint um, in the country for like a day until someone was like, what the hell is this actually? And then there was this analysis of what this was. But it's a really fascinating example of... Uh, that wasn't something coming from outside your universe, right? Like, that could have been a, sp a sports video, right? If you're a guy who only follows sports accounts, that could have been something happening at a sporting event that you would mm -hmm. have seen, and you would have promoted it because it spoke to your confirmation bias, essentially. Um, and that's the kind of things that we're not paying enough attention to. It's not coercive narrative as much as things that kind of work right into the stuff you're already looking at, but are moving you in a certain direction um, in a way that's less confrontational. So our our protection against those things is lower. You know, we're not really evaluating them in a critical way. Um, those are the things that I think we're not paying enough attention to, where a lot of people who posted that video never looked at it again. And, like, yeah. it's just, you know, it's just, it is what it is. Um, and there's a lot of that happening. Mm. I know it's grim. Yeah, it is grim. Yeah. Absolutely, that's the right word for it. Let's talk a bit about your your particular journey. You went to Stanford. You did um, Russian language, mm -hmm. uh, among other things, history maybe and culture as well. Um, why 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 the interest in in Russian history to start with? But then and obviously, what led you to doing what you're doing now? None of my stuff is very purposeful, and it's all sort of like the <laughs> sideways, like, oh, I just ended up here. Um, yeah. No, you know, I went yeah. to Stanford very much intending to leave with a science degree and was doing science stuff, and sometime in my 
I guess it was my sophomore year. Anyway, I was doing research for some guy on this biology-related topic, and a lot of the research that he actually wanted to look at was written in Russian, and I was like, well, this is annoying. Well, I'll just take Russian, because, like, why not take another language, as as college kids do, right? So I started taking Russian, and it, at Stanford then at the time... Um, Obviously, this was a tiny department. Like, I was one of four people that graduated in that program the year that I graduated. Um, uh, it was a bunch of, like, Soviet emigres who were teaching all of the courses, like, cool old crusty dudes and ladies. Um, but it was just a totally different basket of things that... And the degree that you mentioned, it was this very unique degree that Stanford did at the time. Now they do not, because engineers don't think these things matter, as the guys who took over the school after decided. But it was a degree in Russian language, history, and culture. So you had to do those three things. So it was sort of this holistic, you need to know the different pieces of this, you know, cone um, to leave with this degree. And that was, I actually think, really useful. Um, but it was this really unique approach to how to learn this stuff. And in the, in the process of starting to take more classes in Russian, on history, and in international relations, adjacent topics, um, I realized what I actually liked a lot more. It's like systems, right? Like the analysis of systems and how things relate to each other, um, which is a piece of science, <laughs> was like the thing that I was more interested in. So I kind of ended up focusing more on that piece by the end. Uh, and then what do you do with your Russian degree in the year 2000, which is uh, you go and get a master's degree because what the hell should you do? <laughs> so um, I did a master's degree at, at LSE at the London School of Economics um, and completed my master's dissertation like a week before 9-11. Uh, wow. So then everything all of us had written totally different because mm. the world had completely changed. But um, none of it was, none of those sort of decisions were necessarily where I set out to be. It was just where you ended up because the stuff was interesting at the time, mm. which I know isn't great planning, but um, I'm not I'm not sad about it. So I, came, I moved to D.C. like 10 days after 9-11 um, and have been sort of based out of here since, although in all sorts of other places. Uh, but that meant nobody was paying attention to Russia in the year 2001. So it was like everybody did the wars for a while. There was a lot of Middle East and Afghanistan. Uh, and then I ended up working in Africa for a bit uh, and then sort of got sucked back into the stuff I actually knew anything about uh, around 2008 when there was the Russian invasion of Georgia um, and have been doing the region around Russia since, basically. So a very non-linear <laughs> journey to where I am now, but um, a lot of the weird stuff that I kind of got sucked into was good training uh, and certainly good education on where I have ended up. Uh, but it's all very random. <laughs> I think, well, I mean, to be honest, this is the podcast for that because we're very much, you know, champions of random. I think actually that's a good name for a podcast. Champions of random. Champions of random is a really good. Yeah, that that's would be really good. good. Um, but and and I think it's nice sometimes just sort of following wherever your I guess your heart or your mind or wherever it wants to take you. And you've ended up having a you know fantastically interesting career, picking up these amazing skills that not many people have that are clearly very useful. And I'm guessing moving to DC at the end of 2011 must that must have been a very interesting environment at the time, surely. It was so weird. I mean, if you've ever been to D.C. Um, I've only been to the States twice, and it's 
the two times I've been is been to Washington DC. Ah, normally it's yeah. New York. So congratulations <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that you have left New York and or to LA or something. Yeah. Um, you know, if you've been to DC, then you know it's like. It's and especially for Americans as well, foreigners also. But it's a city of tourists, right? Like everybody comes here to learn things, to do the stuff, to go to the museums, to hear the history, to see yeah. the things. Um, and this time of year, especially when every eighth grader in the United States who can afford it comes to DC on their class trips, it's like a freaking nightmare on the mall right now. But um, I remember doing my eighth grade trip; it was fantastic. Like it forms you in certain ways. But um, you know, the city is. A busy city, a very much a living city. It's an interesting place to live because it's still southern-ish. So it's like there's this slow mm. aspect to DC. You can't go into a meeting and start. You have to have little small talk. Lots of how are the kids? The weather is weird. Nice seersucker suit you're wearing because <laughs> literally people still wear seersucker in the wild here, which is like absolutely <laughs> crazy. But um, you know, it's this very unique constructed city. That's just for this government thing. And it's becoming other things now because there's so much money here and so much lobbying here and so much tech and defense industry and other things. But it's not uh, like London, which is the financial hub, the government hub, the everything else hub of the UK, uh, or certainly the uh, England. Um, it's not like that here. Like our stuff is spread around in different areas. So DC is just the government uh, and sort of history and culture center in some ways. And... It's always full and sort of full of people, and you kind of love that being here, even when you hate it because they're all over the place and in the way. It's like, it's really great to see Americans here wanting to learn about their history and their country and engaging with government because you can just kind of walk in and talk to people and whatever else. Um, all those things are great. And so this period after 9-11, and if we think back about that time, right, when... So, yes, there were cell phones, but... Not really yet, mm. right? Like, government people had Blackberries, business people had Blackberries, but it wasn't really, like, a common phenomenon to have a smart-ish phone. Uh, so there were cell phones, um, but it was still pretty low-tech. There was email, you know, but, like, every, it was, like, only on your computer, really. Um, it was this weird time when... So 9-11 happened. It totally changed how America was looking at things in terms of security, the ability of people to touch us. Um, and for DC, uh, the plane that crashed into the Pentagon, the plane that crashed in Pennsylvania that was destined for DC somewhere, um, really had deep impact on the city. And there's all this peripheral stuff that we now forget. There were like the anthrax attacks happening at the same time. Yeah. Like, you know, just like everything went shit sideways here. Yeah. So mail was not getting anywhere because now everything had to be screened in some triple redundant facility to make sure nobody was getting biological weapons in the mail. Um, there was no mail. No, like the, there was new security everywhere that had not existed previously. Traffic was disrupted. But the city was empty and shut down mm -hmm. for a long time. And uh, the closest airport to D.C. is Reagan National, which is the one just across the river uh, in Virginia. Um, uh, and that was closed for months and months. And so just, like, no planes flying over D.C., which was, like, this totally quiet, strange dynamic. But yeah. when I first came to D.C., I remember walking with my mom, uh, who had driven me down, um, on the mall, where there was no one. There was, like, two people jogging, you know, which wow. is so weird. It's like being in a zombie movie. Yeah. And in the circle of flags that goes around the Washington Monument, um, they were all at half-mast, and it was just, like, 
totally silent. You could hear the flags snapping on the poles. Uh, there was nobody around. It was just like the most eerie sense of where the country was at the time. And that took a long time to change. Like the city was fundamentally different after this um, because it changed how everybody was thinking about personal security, government security, security of the nation. Um, it was a really weird time to be here. Um, and I'm glad, uh, sort of glad that I came in that period um, because I, like many of my peers from this period, you know, there was a whole wave of people that joined the U.S. military, the U.S. intelligence mm-hmm. services, uh, the FBI, et cetera, then, um, because they understood there were new threats to the nation that they wanted to help uh, protect against. Um, it was a really interesting time to come here, and I think it was before everything went completely crazy. Um, and now it's crazy, so I'm glad, <laughs> I'm glad I got to see it before when it wasn't so crazy. But... Um, uh, it was a really interesting time to come to D.C., and I think understanding the dynamics that were happening in the the Bush years, the w. Bush, mm-hmm. George W. Bush years, um, and then what came after, it's been interesting to see this whole progression of the city, of concepts of American power, uh, of how we are viewing and interacting with the world. Really interesting period for the United States. Mm-hmm. Very interesting period, mm-hmm. for sure. Can I let's talk a bit about Russia then? Sure. Um, so obviously, an interesting period for Russia at the moment, um, and for the last sort of, you know, how long, ever long, twenty years now that um, Vladimir Putin's been in power around that sort of period. Isn't well, it? as president slash pretend president, yes. uh, twenty three. <laughs> twenty three. Um, but he was prime minister briefly before. So yeah. let's just say twenty five years yeah. for for the We're sake of rounding up. <laughs> yeah. Which I think um, is probably longer than Stalin was in power, perhaps. Um, you may know better than me around that. Officially, um, yeah. I mean, in terms of actually in control, that's yeah. probably right, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, it could be said that there's, there, there is some compar- comparisons between the two, perhaps. Um, I don't know if that's a fair thing to say, but yes, certainly, yeah, certainly um, Putin has clearly been reading a lot of history in, in recent years. But tell us a bit about how their information war, warfare kind of began and if there was a particular period where it became apparent that that kind of stuff was happening more prevalently. It's a good question. And, you know, the term that Jim was using earlier, disinformation, which is one that we've all started using in this very informationally specific way. It's like, mm bad, wonky, coercive information mm. somewhere online or in the news or whatever. Um, in the Russian sense, the word disinformation, disinformatia, is a more holistic concept, uh, which is the same as the term active measures you've probably heard. Um, but basically meaning like all of the non-warfare tools of conflict, <laughs> of persuasion, of influence, uh, of war... Um, that you can use, particularly from the Russian intelligence services and security services. But all of these other things are in that same basket. And they're all part of a spectrum of how you're targeting, influencing, um, operating. But they're all part of the same sort of operational concept. And I think um, that's the thing where, uh, you know, the, the Russia 
the 90s were sort of this dark, strange time when nothing really worked, and there's Yeltsin, and at first he's, like, sort of this grand figure, and then he gets drunker and drunker. <laughs> um, and the sort of appearance of him and the decline of Yeltsin really paralleled the feeling in the country uh, as the economy collapsed, as everything kind of, like, the lights turned off, like, as everything got darker and bleaker, um, that this was a bad period for Russia. And the thing that Putin um, was able to effectively exploit in building an image for himself was this, the 90s sucked, I'm going to do better, and you're going to give up some of the notional freedoms that you have in our new democracy um, in order to have that, but we're going to have security again, we're going to have economic growth again, like, we're going to be a real country again. And that that sort of deal that he was making with Russians appealed to many people because the 90s were just so fucking horrible. And it, there was never going to be the way that it wasn't horrible. Like, this wasn't Yeltsin's fault. Like, you were a big, fictitious empire with fictitious power that had maintained the illusion of greatness and vastness uh, through mind-fucking your own people for decades. Um, and of course, when you pull the mind-fuckery card out of that equation, it all just falls down. Uh, so it was always going to fall apart um, when the Soviet Union collapsed. Uh, but there's this sort of specific blame that has now been assigned to all of these things that Putin weaponizes so well. But um, this, the emergence of Putin is a really important progression of things. Um, and as you said, he's been reading a lot of history. He's also been writing a lot of history, rewriting a lot mm. of history to fit the narrative that he wants to... Um, to sort of put modern Russia into, and it's this, like, you kind of have to forget, like, the Soviet period is this anomaly. Like, we're just, we're going to gloss over it as much as possible. But it's this thousand-year arc of history that began with the conversion of the dude in Crimea, of course, to Orthodox uh, Christianity um, until modern day. Um, but this arc of Russia as an empire, um, sort of on the edge of Europe, um, that is sort of unique and apart and distinct because of that um, and must be those things in order to be great and powerful. Um, and he's been very good at uh, slowly moving things in those directions um, in building a cadre of guys around him who support all of this because they understand the power agreement that they've entered into. Um, and... Uh, it's a really grim situation for Russia because on the information side, um, everything that they do to us now that we sort of talk about, like the Russian information warfare targeting Ukraine, the West, wherever, um, all that stuff is stuff they use on their own people and used on them first. Um, and when they realized how effective it was at controlling their own population, all of these were tools of internal control. Um, they sort of just turned them outward and started targeting different pieces. And so I think... Understanding this as not just information, but this critical component in the spectrum of active measures, which internally are control measures and externally are about um, sort of tools of achieving geopolitics, influence, economic goals, strategic goals, I think is where we're still a little bit sometimes... Like, sometimes we don't understand why the Russians are doing or saying what they do, but but, but it's because it's all in the spectrum of things um, that is really important. But they've been very effective at revitalizing the psychological and informational tools that um, were sort of critical in Russia for a long time, even before the Soviet period, 
um, but sort of really perfected in the KGB and in that era um, in the Soviet times. Uh, and adapting them to a more modern environment, understanding how social media makes those faster and more effective, um, and understanding how money uh, and other lines of influence um, make all of that a lot easier and more effective. So it's a very, it's hard. It's always this challenge of looking at Russia where the people who try to say we're all crazy for believing any of this works are like, look at Russia, they can't even pick up the garbage and their army is crap and whatever. Like, how can you believe this is a threat? And it's like, yeah, but it's always been that way. Where like, no, they've never been able to pick up the garbage. And yes, their army has always been crap. But like, it doesn't mean they're not going to eventually help defeat the Nazis or attack us or invade multiple neighbors or achieve really effective strategic goals against us. Um... Because there's just this different way of operating that they embrace that we're not necessarily so convinced is real. Can I say firstly that uh, the phrase mindfuckery is superb and uh, will be going into my lexicon. That's Absolutely. How, it's a great term. How have I never heard that before? It's so good. Um, and you used it so seamlessly as well. It's just like beautifully slotted in there. Um, I can't not curse. My family is very dirty mouth. It's okay. We, we, we embrace it on this podcast. We do. So and I'm, I get told off actually <laughs> for, yeah. It's sort of, sli- it's, it's sort of, I, ne- I never swear like aggressively, but it just, it just like slips out. That's, that's the, yeah, that's the problem. Sometimes it's the right word. Mm. Yeah. Sometimes there's no other, exactly. There's no other way to describe. Yeah. yeah completely, completely agree. Um, my question, though, about... I mean, Russia is a, is a, is a fascinating country. Um, yeah. I mean, it's so fucking big. Like, it's, 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 it's yeah, just... Yeah, we forget that sometimes. And it's just... I do find it it's sort of, like, um, jointly scary and jointly interesting sort of at the same time. But my question to you about... If you've been, you know, been sort of studying all this stuff for so long, uh, on some level, do you end up sort of, like, falling in love with Russia? Do you, you know, do you, do, do, does your kind of, like... The way you feel about the country change because you're just spending so much time, you know, studying all this stuff. You know, for me, no, because uh, you know, as I said, I had this sort of post-school circuitous journey back to the post-Soviet area. Um, and the year I was supposed to have gone to study in Moscow was the year the banks collapsed, so none of us went, and like you know, all these kinds of things. Mm. Um, so I never really went, and by the time I would have been interested in going was after I had worked for the Georgians. And I don't really want the one-way visa. Like, the one-way visa is not one that I'm interested Mm -hmm. in. So, um, for me, like, my grown-up focus on Russia, the work that I've done, the professional focus on learning about Russia, is sort of blessedly absent of the Moscow mindfuckery. And learned looking in, which is why I think I have this very unique perspective on some of the stuff, um, because I learned from Georgians, from Estonians, from Lithuanians, from Moldovans, from Ukrainians, and not from this sort of cadre of Moscow shit that most people learn from, um, where they fall in love with Russia and the Russians, or let's talk about the Russians in the cafes. And I'm not dismissing that there are wonderful, smart Russians, Russian writers, Russian journalists, uh, you know, Russian artists, Russian businessmen, whatever. There's lots of Russians who are great and decent people, I'm sure. Um, but this, uh, this particular dynamic of how Russia as a state has operated in the post-Cold War period, 
uh, and what it is doing to its neighbors and how the rest of us have missed all of it is a little easier to be clear on when you're not convincing yourself that the Russians in the cafes are the ones that are determining the course of the country because they're not. And um, it's hard because... There's many journalists uh, who have been in Russia way too long, I mean, like Western journalists who have spent way too much time in Moscow or who do the stint in Moscow before they come back to their countries and become famous political reporters. There's a lot of Moscow stuff sort of layering journalistic careers. Um, and some of that is good and gives you perspective and insight. And some of it is the you don't really understand you were being influenced the entire time you were there, do you, type of stuff. Yeah. And... Uh, so it's a really mixed and hard dynamic, but um, I do think Russia does a really good job of trying to separate the bad, we use intelligence for everything stuff, and we poison people, and we assassinate people, and we kill people, and we torture our own people, and we put them in jail anytime we feel like it, and people fall out windows like, oops! Um, they do a good job of separating all of that from oh, but we have the ballet and the writers and everybody reads fucking Tolstoy and whatever else. (laughs) And uh, they use all of those nice things as lines of influence. And again, not to say you shouldn't read Russian literature. If you want to read Russian literature, I had to read my fair share of it. Um, But understanding how they try to exploit the idea of Russian culture, um, Russian history, these weird cultural ties and phenomenon... Um, as tools of influence to get you to ignore the bad things that they do um, is important. And uh, uh, it's been interesting, this latest phase. I'm sure you've seen the story of this Wall Street Journal reporter who was detained in Russia, uh, accused of espionage. Obviously, he's not a spy. Mm-hmm. He's just some kid. Uh, I mean, he's 30, but a kid in journalistic <laughs> terms. Um and it's clear, like, everybody's, like, floored by this. Like, they never thought the terrible system was going to be the thing that came for them, right? And it's true, there's been this somewhat safer line for foreign journalists. Usually they'll just kick you out uh, if they want you gone as opposed to arrest you. But, um, and I'm not saying it's his fault. He was there trying to do his job. You know, he had was there for the right reasons, for the right motivations. But understanding that this is the system that you're operating inside and having reality about that. And that once you're caught up in the thing, you're in the thing until it's done. Like there's no escape from the thing. Uh, you now have to go through the trial and be sentenced before you can be traded. Right. Mm-hmm. Like this is not going to be a very fun process, mm-hmm. but this is the, this is the actual Russia. And for the neighbors who have had to deal with all this stuff while everyone has tried to ignore it and talk about the vast economic prospects of the wild west of Russia and everything else. Uh, it's been a bit, it's been, it's been like three decades of rolling their eyes. And, um, I think finally they feel like there's more people are finally listening to them, which is good, but it's not a guarantee that we're on a straight trajectory in terms of how we're dealing with Moscow Um, I think there's a lot of people who would like for all of this to just go away and go back to the way that it was. Um, And that's really dangerous because I think if we have not by now understood that everything we did from the collapse of the Soviet Union until now in terms of how we interpreted, analyzed, interacted with Russia was wrong and enabled what is happening now, like until we have that come to Jesus with ourselves, um, we're not going to get the Ukraine war right, and we're not going to get what comes after right. And we still really haven't had that conversation 
um, that we're still getting this. Like, we thought Ukraine would collapse in five days because we're listening so much to Moscow and not to our own stuff, right, or to our allies. Um, and that is not a good sign of where we are. So a little grim, but... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say to you, do you have any feelings or thoughts around what will happen in the Ukraine and then going forward? How, you know, if um, the status quo returns, how how we deal with Russia in future? I mean, where we are now is a frustrating, frustrating place, uh, which is the Ukrainians have done everything possible to show us that they are capable, that they can fight this war, that they can defeat the Russians, um, that they are looking toward building a better nation, that they are looking toward trying to build a future relationship with a better Russia um, that can help the rest of us too. Like, they're doing everything they can to drag us forward, um, while fighting this terrible war, uh, and we're all so fucking slow about what we're doing to help. Yeah. And, you know, could I have understood that right at the beginning? Hmm. Didn't like it, but yeah, I understood it. Could I have understood that, like, three, four months in? Yeah, sure. But 14 months in, it's a little bit stupid that we're still like, oh, I don't know if we can send them the thing. Yeah. Like, maybe they should just have to fight and retake every inch of their fucking territory, you know, one yard at a time, like it's fucking World War II, instead of giving them long-range weapons and airplanes. It's like, why? Why on earth would we even think this is a real way to fight a war? I mean, it's madness. So I'm really frustrated with where we are. Have we done more for Ukraine than I feared we would? Absolutely. Like, I feared they would do absolutely nothing and the Ukrainians would be there with, like, sticks and rocks fighting. And they would still be fighting. Um, But thankfully, we've done more than that. Um, The UK has been really good as a defense partner of Ukraine as well, I should mention. Um, And obviously the Americans are sending a lot of stuff, but it's also fucking slow and grudging. And we're just too slow in how we're looking at this thing. And we, the US at least, keep making these dumb statements like, we've assessed that Ukraine doesn't need this for this phase of the war. And it's like, we don't know what their war plan is. So what do you mean? We don't know. Like, we don't, they don't think they need it. Like, it's just all so dumb and linear in terms of a concept of war. Uh, where obviously, if you can attack Crimea, blow up that fucking bridge, like, do all sorts of other things, it would be a real change in uh, what the landscape looks like and what comes next. So I'm really frustrated with where we are as an alliance supporting Ukraine, having made this terrible decision that, I mean, terrible in terms of human cost, not necessarily terrible in terms of bad, having made this terrible decision uh that Ukraine will spill the blood and we will provide weapons and treasure um, to fight the war, uh, that the Ukrainians have agreed to this and aren't bitter about it and don't complain about it and absolutely know it's their war to fight and we'll fight it until the end, but we have to keep up our side of that deal in a way that is costing less lives and not as as many of the lots of lives, as, like as few of the lots of lives as possible, uh, which is kind of where we are now. And it's... I mean, it's really, this is not good for us. Like, what we are doing right now is not good for us. Um, And it has no strategic end goal defined, uh, which is bad militarily and otherwise. Um, And it's terrible for Ukraine. I mean, just 
not, let alone the economic cost, the devastation of landscape, uh, the human cost, the rift in every society, uh, in every family in the country uh, that has been impacted by the war. Um, on the Russian side, and yes, many more Russians are dying than Ukrainians in this awful, ridiculous war. Um, but on the Russian side, we know who's dying. It's conscripts who are largely not ethnically Russian. It's convicts. It's whoever they can throw away into the trenches mm -hmm. the same way in, like, Stalingrad. Like, five guys died for every one guy they killed, right? Um, it's this disposable piece of society that Putin doesn't give a fuck about. And... On the Ukrainian side, who's dying? We know who's dying. It's athletes and artists and mm -hmm. tech guys and businessmen and people from the government who joined the army after the war started. Um, it's the best and brightest um, of the country, of a country of really great, talented people. Um, but the cost that we are asking them to bear is too fucking much. And ridiculous, just on its face, absolutely crushing and ridiculous the way that we are doing this. Um, so I think the good news is that Ukraine is Ukraine. And as we saw the first five days of the war, which they had to fight before we were convinced, oh, we should arm these people, maybe they won't die right away. Um, the good news is Ukraine is Ukraine. They understand they have absolutely no choice but to defend their territory and take it all back. Uh, because otherwise Russia will erase them, which they are very clear about as yeah, they steal yeah, their children, yeah. uh, blow up cultural sites, you know, make open statements like Ukraine should not exist anymore. They know they have no choice but to fight. So even if we stop giving them stuff, um, they will keep fighting with whatever they have for as long as they can. Um, so I think the good news is Ukraine is still in the right place. Ukraine is still very focused. There's been no impact like, there's no lessening of will that's happened in the last 14 months. If you go to Ukraine, if you talk to people, nobody's tired. Like, nobody's losing hope. Like, for them, it's just, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to win. Um, but I think the rest of us need to screw our heads back on straight and not keep looking for the best possible situation in which to have negotiations, which can't happen, which won't happen. Um... So I'm, I'm like, optimistic, but pessimistic always at the same time. Um, but I am really frustrated about where we are uh, in the state of the war. Mostly when I say we in that, like the further west-west, not the Baltic states, Poland, the Nordic states, which have been pretty good. Um, the UK has been pretty good. Um, but France, Germany, and the US is, like, trying to take credit and putting on a good show. And yes, we've sent a lot of stuff, but... There's a real softness underneath that uh, in terms of policy, which is depressing. Disapp yeah, disappointing. Um, <laughs> you, you, the thing I learned from, from this war is that Ukrainians, and I mean like average Ukrainians in the street, are hard bastards. <laughs> they, oh, yeah. they are, I mean, it's different level. They're like, it, it is like the, the, the uh, musicians and the artists and stuff, and they're going out there, they're like, yeah, I'm just going to go to war. If, it, if this is in this country, I think I'd be like, um... Can I get back to you about that? I'm just gonna sit in my I'll cabin for TikTok. a bit. Yeah, I'll see what. Yeah, exactly. I'll see what happens. They are <laughs> impressive people. It is mad, but it's like it's really interesting. I think I was thinking about sort of like the coverage of the war because, like, obviously when it like first yeah. kicked off, it was like all over the news and stuff. And now you might sort of barely sort of hear about it. And, and I think 
people get like war fatigue and i think you get that with a lot of stuff and they they, they sort of there's initial like impetus and oh we let you win eurovision like isn't that great like and all this kind of like aren't we like helping <laughs> slash yeah. we're not really sort of helping you know, and yeah. people eurovision. i mean that was Jesus. mad and then people like i mean the song was quite good but even so um and and people like i don't know i think we get i think as a, as humans we just get tired of stuff and and obviously, as you say, the Ukrainians don't get that luxury. They have to keep fighting. But also, you just, you just, in terms of information, you just hear and see less of it. So then, then it's like you're thinking, okay, well, if I'm not hearing it on the news, then maybe I shouldn't be. Is too... it being suppressed in some or way? Or maybe yes. I just shouldn't be too fussed about it anymore. Okay, cool. So the BBC News aren't talking about it. Oh, I can, you know, let myself off the hook and not feel so guilty about it. I think it's it's like a combination of factors, right? Part of it is just fatigue media cynicism in general we've been telling this story for so fucking long like oh let's go look at the cats in the trees the cats in the trees are way more fun right now um let's look at our own domestic political there's a flood somewhere there's a fire whatever it is like let's cover our own disaster porn and not this war thing that's happening um i do think there's been a good drumbeat of good reporting on ukraine in most western places but you're right that the volume is drastically decreased. And I think not disconnected from the Elon Musk purchase of Twitter um, has been that the early, very visual, very loud, very voluminous um, online support for Ukraine has been disrupted. Mm -hmm. And um, the Ukrainians are still doing a lot of good things. They have good pipelines for information promotion, for fundraising, for all sorts of other stuff. Because, of course, a crazy fucking aspect of this war is they're literally crowdfunding vast portions of it. And we're like, that's cool. They're buying their own. It's like, what? Wow. What are you talking about? You know, it's just like, we're totally fine with an army being like, hey, Estonia, can you bring us a bunch of body armor? Sure. No problem. Estonia will do that. This is madness that individual citizens in foreign countries are crowdfunding an army in the middle of a war. And we think this is like, an idea we should promote. Imagine what this looks like someplace that isn't Ukraine yeah. that we actually like, I mean, right? Like mad. madness. So, um, I think a lot of that has been, it's hard to sustain that kind of volume over time. I do think Ukraine has good networks that it's built that are still churning the rah-rah Ukraine stuff. Mm. I think Russia has been, uh, more diligent and I mean, they really, lost the information war against the West at the beginning of this conflict. Because uh, they had nothing to say. Like, what are you going to say? Like, we're a bag of dicks. Yeah, exactly. Like, that's all we got to <laughs> yeah, say. Exactly. Um, they had nothing, and they knew it. Um, hashtag bag of dicks. So, like, that was sort of all they had at the beginning, but they were doing all these other things, right? And in terms of influence building, information, warfare, support, narrative, whatever, outreach to... I guess what we're now calling the Global South, extremely successful Russian work in this period. Um, uh, so I think our our perspectives on some of this are a little bit non-global at times. Um, but you're exactly right that keeping focus on this um, and every day on the human cost, which is hard to do. Like, you can't tell a, a terrible, sad, oh my god, the Russians blew up a theater full of pregnant women story every day like it's too much for people psychologically even though that's what's happening in ukraine um but i think 
every day remembering, every day we don't send them the thing that they're asking for. Every day we've stalled in ordering more munitions to send them so they can keep shooting down Russian missiles. Every day we haven't given them XYZ thing is dead Ukrainians. And they cover the gap in capabilities and technology with guys in pickup trucks, and that equals bodies. Um, that's what we're asking them to do. Like, we just need to confront that in ourselves every day. Maybe we have strategically made those decisions that that is the right thing for us. Uh, and I know there's a lot of people who are sort of locked in this, in, in like the intelligence, foreign policy, blah, blah, security analytics space, who have maybe convinced themselves of this completely stupid narrative that it's good because Russia's bogged down in Ukraine and can't do anything to anyone else. And they're just like expending all of their stuff and like, haha. But like, we're also really invested in this. We have also expended a lot of our stuff on this. Uh, and if we're not doing it for a strategic outcome, what the fuck? And like, you know who really loves all this? China, which is just over there like, go ahead, NATO and Russia. You do all the things and we'll be over here just like in our 50-year plan waiting for the next thing. And I, again, I think this Russia's bogged down in Ukraine thing is so fucking toxic. Uh, but it is something some people who should know better believe. Um, I, I think we really need to be focused on, there is no good outcome of this that is built upon millions of Ukrainian dead. And we just need to focus on this more. If we know the Russian outcome or the desired Russian outcome is the end of the Ukrainian state, the end of a Ukrainian identity, the end of Ukrainian society, which they've stated very openly, well, they've already kind of achieved a lot of those things. The nation is split. Millions of people have gone abroad. Millions of people will not ever come back, right? Like, once you settle somewhere else, uh, it is harder to uproot your family again and come back the longer this war goes on. Like, this division and erosion is already happening, not because Ukrainians aren't smart about it and trying to maintain it. It's just how life works, right? Um, and it just, like, let's stop giving the Kremlin what's easy and good for them. And we're just not focused on that still. It's like, we're going to do some more sanctions. Well, they don't care. Mm. <laughs> like, they absolutely don't care. Mm. Um, and there's been patience in how they are influencing our systems. And I think, again, you see these like old tools of Russian influence um, reasserting themselves in the sort of peacenicky channels and the we need to negotiate and in the war channels and the like our economic ties with Russia are still important channels. Um... It's a little bit depressing, to be honest, but uh, all the stuff that's important is still there in like a lower volume in terms of support for Ukraine, good stories about Ukraine, good narrative. Um, but there's definitely more Russian attempts to, especially using intelligence information and sort of leaked intelligence information, um, to uh, get real journalistic stories that create doubt about the state of the war in Ukraine written. Uh, one of my biggest head-exploding things about this stupid set of leaks in the United States right now from this dumb kid and his Discord group um, is clearly what he was trying to get people to understand is the Ukraine war is stupid and it's a waste of our time, and he says that sort of very openly at times. Um, and so all of the shit that's being... As everybody's, like, analyzing these leaked documents... Um, they're discussing it through the perspective that he was discussing it, which is this Ukraine can't win the war uh, idea, um, which is not true. And it's just, it's all reinforcing, you know what I mean? It's like this really unhelpful yeah. dynamic of reinforcing narratives. 
um, that I think we're not maybe as aware of how we're talking about some of these things. But there's a lot of things happening to try to build this idea that Ukraine can't win, that at some point we're going to have to negotiate, that um, all of the limitations that are there can't be overcome, none of which is true. Like, if we want to make more munitions, we can absolutely make more munitions faster than we can right now. Um, but we've been really slow about addressing the challenges. Yeah. I'm very frustrated. Yeah. Um, I've got one sort of last set of questions I'd like to ask you. Mm-hmm. It's going back to a little bit what you've just touched on there, but what we started talking about at the beginning around conspiracy theories and um, how how they seem very prevalent, particularly in the US, but it's obviously seeping out over here as well. I've had conversations in the last few weeks with a few people um, not people I know necessarily, but who've sort of touched on a few kind of conspiracy theories that I've had to kind of question their logic around. And um, they seem to be getting them a lot from, obviously, from things like YouTube. And I've got I've got two young yeah. teenage kids who are on YouTube a lot. Uh-huh. And I, you know, it, it worries me that, you know, places like YouTube aren't taking care of people and individuals around a lot of this information that's going around various different conspiracy theories that obviously during the Trump Trump years has been exacerbated and he's used that as well you know with his own um, campaigns and stuff and and, and kind of I guess it's a way of preying on people's fears and whatever but is there is there more that I mean obviously there's more that these um, social media and things like YouTube can be doing um but how, how do we kind of force the hand in some way? Yeah, it's it's a good question. Let me ask you first. When you're saying, you know, people mm. are constantly popping up with conspiracy... Like, what? give me an example of the kind of conspiracy theory you're hearing in the wild over there that you're like, what? what? Well, funny enough, I, I was talking to someone else about... Um, a guy who's written a book about conspiracy theories uh, and and like going around different countries to, to uh-huh. meet people who've got... And there's actually... Someone's come up with devised this pyramid... Um, it's like an inverted pyramid of conspiracy theories. So down the bottom, you've got like kind of low level things. Um, I don't know, like uh, you've got like JFK and stuff in the sort of middle mm-hmm. section. Mm-hmm. And then top, obviously top, you've got flat earthers, you've got QAnon, you've got the 5G stuff, you've got um, oh, yeah, an- anti-vaxxers. Mm. Yeah. yeah, anti-vaxxers. Uh, lizard, you know, like the royal families, lizards, all that lizard kind of people. stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So the top of it, obviously, is those big things. Now, I'm finding from some conversations we're having that people will start off um, on the low-level stuff, and very rapidly they're going towards the top end uh, of this scale. Yeah. And they're, you know, oh, yeah, actually, I do believe a little bit in the QAnon thing. Oh, and I, I, actually, I do. I think well, it was a bit of a conspiracy. It has a point. Yeah. <laughs> well, and they'll say, well... Jeffrey Epstein was like, he was mates with all the politicians and stuff. So maybe there was this kind of like a global elite of, you know, pedophile rings and stuff. So it's kind of people can justify these these bits of information with various kind of stuff. So it's that, I guess for me, it's, it's, it's obviously the, um, the very quick descent into like the really yeah. Yeah, yeah. more obscure, strange, weird stuff that most people would say is nonsense from very low level stuff. Your cat just did a really amazing stretch. <laughs> like, the full cat stretch. It was great. Um, yeah, you know, it's it, the thing about conspiracy theories that's so fascinating is like, I mean, we tend to talk of them in term, in the psychological sense, but not necessarily enough in terms of how our brains have evolved since. And I think you know, there's been some pretty good 
in kind of the weird, like, cultural anthropology evolution discussions space, there's been some interesting speculation and, like, can we actually know these things? Like, can you quantify the piece of your brain that believes in things you can't see? No, but, like, we as little monkeys surviving against whatever the fuck was trying to eat us way back in the day, um... It's terrible, right? Like, when you start having consciousness, understanding that shit's trying to eat you, you might fall out of the tree or off the cliff or what. like, many of your children will die. Like, this is fucking terrible <laughs> shit to have to confront as a sentient being. Um, so the evolution of this things you can't see explain things and are important is an important part of, like, our own innate psychological defense in how we evolve. It's the same way our brains are designed to forget stuff, right? Because, like, it's basic psychological defense, being able to forget terrible things and remember the better things as time goes on. Um, so I think this, the whole, and you can call it, like, just believing in stuff you can't see. You can call it, like, the piece of your brain that allows religion to exist. You know, again, you're believing in a higher thing or a thing that you can't interpret. There is, like, a piece of the way our brain works um, that relates to all of these other things. And psychologically, the concept you're talking about is just openness. So it's like, in psych, you know, just you have an open mindset, not meaning, like, the way that we usually mean it, but it means uh, when someone confronts you with information that is not from the structure that you've been mm-hmm. raised inside and built around yourself... Um, that you're willing to consider it, even if it challenges your own tenets of belief, right? Um, So it's not hard to see how somebody who's looking at the energy crystals online, the magic harmonic frequencies that are going to cure your cancer, uh, whatever the thing is, uh, gets from there to the next thing, to maybe there's something I don't understand about how government works, to fucking full-on QAnon, mm-hmm. the 5G towers are going to rip the world apart stuff. Um, because it's it's the same psychological tool, which is if you're if people can present you with information you're willing to consider, and it will always have like that little piece of truth that you can like link onto yeah. something, and it sort of takes you one step up the pyramid at a time. Some people move through that process very quickly. Uh, some people have like a stop point, but some people just full-on get into the thing. And I think, especially because of the internet... Um, you know, if you were the Unabomber, for example, in the United States, uh, he was typing up his manifestos and photocopying them and, like, leaving them in libraries or whatever, um, it was hard to get that information, right? Like, you had to, like, go find the crazy pamphlets and (laughs) read the crazy pamphlets, and it was harder to, like, be indoctrinated into these things. And now, especially since people have time, uh, they have the internet... Uh, the internet is targeting you with shit, to your point, uh, all the time. Um, it's really easy to find yourself down a fucking crazy rabbit hole and not understand that you're down one and be in a community of people that believe the things, which then reinforces the idea that this fucking crazy rabbit hole is absolutely real. And um, all of those things which have been more enabled in a social media connected world context, but was happening much earlier, even with like basic chat rooms yeah. and shit like that, Um, it's more scary because of the other aspect you mentioned, which is kind of the algorithmic underpinnings of how data is finding us online. The point of most YouTube-y type things, other social media, whatever, is they just want to keep you looking at the things, right? The next video will start right up. And it used to be, you'd be like, 
a kid would get on the internet watching videos of domino falling, you know, like the domino lines falling or whatever. And within three things they clicked on would end up in like Gangnam style or something. You're like, how the hell did you find this video? And they're like, I don't know, I was just clicking the things on the side. And, um, uh, unfortunately there's also this whole part of YouTube that's like evil Barney. So kids watching cartoons online end up in like these Mm. sex pervert, you know, Nazi shit things. Um, there's whole algorithmic structures that are not very transparent that are convincing young people to kill themselves, um, which are very well documented at this point. Um, there's whole lines of things, especially in like the gaming platforms, the gaming communities that are moving people very slowly into extremist environments, uh, into sort of more what we used to think of as neo-Nazi. And now I guess we're just excusing as like edgelords or whatever. Um, but there's all these things that algorithms are doing to move us toward more extremist content, whether that be the energy crystals to QAnon or, uh, I'm just looking for guys that like memes to Nazis or whatever else, um, because it keeps us engaged and it's all just about engagement. Like we just want you to keep watching the things or scrolling through the things or posting the things or whatever else the thing is. And I think understanding, um, you know, that that's not a bug, it's why it exists. And this is why we're having a challenge in combating a lot of these things. Um, because for now, essentially, you have to identify a thing that's extremely toxic and coercive, get a platform to admit that thing is toxic and coercive, specifically remove the thing. Like, child pornography is a good example, where everybody's sort of like, okay, that's not allowed. Like, we'll take that down. But... Um, uh, Right now it has to be this kind of topic-by-topic, video-by-video, meme-by-meme approach, which is just not going to work. And I think we all know that because, like, 18 gazillion things are uploaded to the Internet every minute. Um, But we're not... (sighs) Government doesn't know how to address this problem because they don't understand technology. Um, I I can't fix it. I'm not... I don't code things. Um, But I think the cultural rift particularly between technologists however you want to define that term now and everything else is now really deep and it's like this very techno libertarian like i'm just gonna make my money and go live on a fucking island i don't care what happens to the rest of you bullshit um that is not great in terms of do you actually care if your product is destroying society um we're not anywhere near being able to address this problem. And again, I think that's this challenge of a lot of people think these are useful tools. Like what is a useful tool to keep a population that's about to lose work because soon everything will be automated quiet. I don't know. Here's some shit to watch on the internet. Shut up and just keep watching the videos. Right. But there's people who actually believe this stuff and you hear these bazillionaires talk about these things. Like there's just too many people and we need to get rid of them. So we, the billionaires who clearly are the most valuable humans in evolution because we have the money, uh, should be in charge of everything and make all the decisions. But there is this creepy conspiracy sounding supranational fabric of dudes with money and influence. And it's all dudes. Let's be clear. Uh, who, think they have the right to make these decisions for everyone. And this is why democracy remains so important, why the idea of individuals mattering within their nations and systems is so important. 
um, and that we not lose this, even though we're all frustrated with how democracy works now and think that it's not really addressing the problems in front of us in effective ways, all of which is true, <laughs> you know, like, but that we not lose that in this terrible transition period where chatbots are already convincing people to kill themselves because it will help the climate or whatever. Um, it's, we're at a really fraught period and no one is really focused on the things, um, and I think we're all, the, the underpinning of all of it is everybody wants purpose. It's why the Ukrainians are doing so well right now, because they understand what their purpose is, right? Like, this is our fucking purpose to not yeah. have our nation be obliterated. Uh, and I think what many of the rest of us struggle with all the time is, like, these very luxurious thoughts we have about, like, what do I want to do? How will I be remembered? You know, what is my purpose in life? Um, when we don't have a clear one... Uh, we sort of invent things to do. And that's how people reading about energy crystals end up in QAnon groups feeling like they're really important because they're analyzing the thing. Um, but all of the sort of... Uh, the erosion of the fabric of traditional society, and I don't mean that in a conservative religious traditional sense, but traditional society structures. Um, the erosion of all of these things that we counted on to where we're, like, isolating ourselves informationally in terms of where we live, in terms of how we interact with people, and then just believe all those things um, and our government's inability to see any of that. And, like, apparently we all just really like electing the craziest people possible to represent yeah. us, yeah. Uh, which is a really great problem that we all need to figure <laughs> out. Like, let's stop electing great... Let's elect non-crazy people. Yeah. That would be good. Um, I don't know. I'm I'm very pessimistic about this pivot point that we're at where we could lose a lot of things very quickly if we're not cognizant of how these changes are happening. Um, I don't really want to live in a computer driven, maybe the authoritarians are in charge. Uh, all your food is made in a vat. And if you don't have money to pay for it, you're going to fucking die system. Like, I don't want to live in that, mm. but we're kind of close to this very dystopian reality. Uh, in a lot of really depressing ways. <laughs> yeah, I, the, te technology is definitely moving quicker than I think we know how to handle it. And the, the YouTube thing's interesting. We've got a three-year-old, three-and-a-half-year-old, and we had to ban her from watching YouTube recently yep. on the Google Home because even though it was initially on official... Um, Peppa Pig and stuff like that um, channels. Mm -hmm. She really quickly got onto one video of Peppa Pig where like Peppa's face started melting, and it was it was fucking terrifying for me. And like it definitely gave her nightmares for a bit. So now she's only allowed to watch iPlayer and um, and uh, <laughs> I've downloaded you this video, and you can just yeah, watch yeah, this yeah, episode yeah. of Abney and Teal over yeah, exactly. and over exactly. and over <laughs> again. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> but it is, it is a bit terrifying. But um, it's been very interesting having you break it down for us, actually, and I and I really appreciate it. I do need to go for a wee. Unfortunately, I drank so much tea and water. I know, I have like nine I different know. mugs over here. Yeah, I yeah, always yeah. forget like how quickly it cuts. Why do I need a wee? I've literally been like mainlining tea. Um, uh-huh, yeah, absolutely. It's been so fascinating. Thank you. Like it's been, we've covered a lot of different subjects and we've, Never had an episode like this before. I hope it's useful and helpful in some way. Yeah, it really has Oh, been. incredibly, yeah. Such, such great insight. And yeah, Molly, honestly, really, really um, such a pleasure to talk to you. And thank you so much for giving us your time. Yeah, it's been really fascinating. My pleasure. My pleasure. What's your cat's name? He's called Mittens. Oh, Mittens, you said. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. because his paws are white. <laughs> So yes, the tuxedo, like it's the tuxedo yeah. look with the same yeah. yeah. It wouldn't have been my choice of names, but the kids sort of... <laughs> Go figure. Yeah. yeah. Go figure. <laughs>
you go. Molly McHugh on the Black Podcast. Thank you, Molly, so much for coming on. That was fascinating stuff. And also, just a really nice person. Yeah. Well, like, very easy to talk to, yeah. funny, like just warm. So, you know, an ideal podcast guest. But I think we've, you know, we've been doing a few episodes recently with sort of stuff we haven't really sort of like done before. So it's it's really, it's really interesting to delve into a subject that we've not really, you know, we skirt around a lot on this podcast and it comes up to, to have an expert on to talk about it. Well, it's really interesting. Um, and I'm trying not to be too depressed about, about it all. I think there is hope. Uh, I think I'd have got that vibe from Molly as well. But uh, I think just, as you said in part one, being being a bit careful, I think, would be my main takeaway from today. Yeah, hope is everything, Jim. Hope is everything. And there, mm-hmm. there's always hope. And there's always a glimmer of light everywhere. And, yeah, uh, yeah like you say, I think sometimes these things, they're quite, they sound quite stark when you're hearing them. But at the same time, there is... You know, like I said, we've all got accountability for these things. We all need to take um, a look at how we use various different media platforms and how we consume news and information and make sure that we just are savvy with it and, you know, do the do due diligence on those things. Mm. Um, I would yeah. have to say also Molly had some of the best swearing that we've had on the podcast for quite some we time. We should have – I I meant to do a – not like a warning, but just like I meant to say in part one there's a lot of swearing, but – um. She did it so effortlessly. Yeah. But I almost didn't notice sometimes. And then she went, oh, I'm sorry I'm swearing so much. I was like, oh, yeah, you are. I didn't really notice. So she, you're clearly an expert, an absolute expert at swearing, because she just did it, like, slipped it in effortlessly, and I just didn't even notice. So, yeah. Sorry if we didn't notice at the start of the pod, but but there is, yeah, fair amount of swearing. Do you know what? I, I Funny, it reminded me a little bit where... Um, so my friend and I... Uh, we went to see a solicitor, an American solicitor, uh, regarding like a band contract for a, for a, um, a management deal with a with my old band. This is years ago. We went in, and the guy was had this this really charming. I guess he must have been from New York. It very he had a bit of a New York kind of accent, and uh, uh, he was swear he was. I was the language was like so blue, but we. I remember us coming out, and I said, "Do you do you notice how much he was swearing and how?" how inoffensive it seemed that he was swearing so much, but just, I think it was because of his accent. And I do wonder like sometimes when Americans swear, it's not, doesn't feel quite as um, stark or um, as controversial as like an English person swearing. I don't know. It feels sort of like a novelty, doesn't it? Yeah. Probably really unfair. I think it depends maybe where, where in the States you're from, because different accents sound, make words sound different. And also I think, Depending on where you're from, swearing will either be like a way of life or will be completely like blasphemous. Like yeah, on yeah, what that's state true. or that's area you're from. It's such a wide country of like mm. basically 50 different countries that um, everyone sort of approaches things differently. Very, I love America. It's a really interesting mm. country. Um, but I hadn't, yeah, I just hadn't quite factored in the swearing. <laughs> American swearing. Yeah. God, we should have talked to Molly about that. Yeah. Anyway, we could, but, have, could have chatted with her. But there was some great, there was some great terms of you. And uh, yeah, I, I, um, I, I enjoyed it. To be fair, I enjoyed. Yeah, it. I don't. I'm, I like a good swear. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm down with it. Yeah, I'm down with it big time. But if, for anyone who is, you know, is offended by swearing, we do apologise. We do, but we should have said this an hour and a half. Ago. But it's fine but because they'll get. There'll be a little e by the. There'll be an e on it. Yeah, exactly. you know, you'll know that. Do you know if you've listened yeah. to this podcast enough, there's normally a bit of swears. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't hold ourselves up yeah. as. But you know, I wonder if we should start a swear jar because we could start to. Uh, could do make yeah. make some money. We could <laughs> maybe it'd be our own money. But... <laughs> All right, we'll start that for next week. Yeah.
Okay, well, thanks for listening to the fucking blank podcast. Yeah, you fuckers. That's two quid. (laughs) (laughs) Good strong start. Anyway, everyone's has a good week. Back next week, of course, with another episode. Yeah. uh, Yeah, thanks to Molly for coming on. What what an absolute legend. Yeah, brilliant. Um, And yeah, hope everyone has a nice, a lovely week. Oh, sorry for our break over at Easter. We had an impromptu break over Easter, but... No, we yeah. It's just it's Easter. It's Easter. Yeah. Day. You know, time for we had to eat lots of eggs and stuff. Uh, we ate so many Easter eggs, we just couldn't bring yeah. ourselves to record. So we were so bloated. Well, I hope everyone so so bloated <laughs> <laughs> with Cadbury's chocolate. Hope everyone had a good Easter though. So yeah, and it's good to be back. We will be back next week though because we've got quite a few in the can now. We have. Uh, but that's it. Yeah, have a good week, mate. Yeah, I remember, Jim. Don't get cancelled. I'll try not to. This is a Glass Box Media Podcast.